Hello world, you're listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo-Linux user group audio podcast. KWLUG discusses topics related to free and open source software of all kinds. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so you can give it to others, remix it, or even sell it, provided you abide by the terms of the license and share alike the works that you remix and redistribute. For more information about KWLUG, visit kwlug.org. For more information about this podcast, visit kwlug.org slash podcasts. In this month's meeting, John Driesen motivates a scrap tracking program in Python and explains how he developed it. And Eugen Konkov describes Devel Debug Hooks, a Perl debugger he wrote. All right, this is the uh, scrap metal price tracking program I wrote. It's called Zubix Scrap App. Um, I wrote it to track scrap metal prices for my own personal interest. Okay, Zubix Scrap App is an application program to track scrap metal purchase prices and plot graphs showing price trends over time for various commodities. I wrote it with Python, SQL Lite 3, GTK 3, and four Python libraries, Plotly, Matplotlib, BeautifulSoup, and the LXML parser. Um, Some examples of scrap metal that I have scrapped and sold in the past. Old barbecues. Um, You usually get steel and cast aluminum out of old barbecues. My favorite thing to scrap, copper wire. At the scrapyard, stripped copper wire is the best grade you can sell, and it's usually number one bright copper or bare bright copper. Wall wart power supplies. The image on the left is the transformers after the plastic shell has been removed. Um, The middle image is the steel left over after you pull all the copper out. And the panel on the right is the number two copper. Uh, Chandelier I have scrapped in the past at uh, number two insulated wire and some yellow brass. And I believe there's a little bit of steel in that mess on the bench. Cast iron sump pump. Again, I get some number two copper out of it and some cast iron. Uh, this is a picture of my mechanic's pickup truck. The last time he took his uh, scrap to the scrapyard, that's a bunch of brake rotors and drums. Probably represents about a year's worth of brake jobs for him. And there's about 2,000 pounds in that truck. And you get the grade at the scrapyard is AutoCast. It's a picture of a Ford Taurus transmission. Uh, Transmissions you can sell as is, or you can disassemble them and sell the aluminum and the steel separately. This particular transmission I actually did disassemble. Um, Here's another transmission, a GM TH350C transmission that is in pieces on the workbench. Uh, You get a cast aluminum housing out of it and some steel. And this is a K-car transmission housing that I finally managed to disassemble. I had to actually cut the last steel piece out with an angle grinder. Uh, I believe I got about 30 pounds of cast aluminum and some steel out of that. Okay, so why bother tracking prices? As a small-time scrapper, I'm a price taker. I have no way of affecting the global price of any scrap metal or any metal commodity. So I want the best possible purchase price for the time invested in disassembling and sorting my scrap metal. In 2017, Scrapyard started publishing their prices online. Three examples are Zubix, London Salvage and Trading, and Benmet Steel Steel and Metal. Um, Here is Zubix's website, and you can see, I'll blow the text up a bit. 
Let's see the price for number one bright copper, which is currently four fifty one a pound. Um, yellow brass is two ninety one a pound. You can see the prices for various aluminum. Cast aluminum is sixty six cents a pound, and tin or iron sheeting is nineteen cents a pound, and auto cast is twenty. Two and a half cents a pound. Second yard I have sold scrap metal to would be London Salvage and Trading. Their prices are similar to Zubix. And there and here is their website. Um they tend to sell to buy the bright bare bright copper for a little bit more than Zubix, but I prefer going to Zubix because I like their yard setup better. And one last example of uh, pricing online is Benmet Steel and Guelph, or Benmet Steel and Metal in Guelph and Stratford. And here's their price list. Um, Benmet Steel and Guelph tends to be a little more aggressive sometimes on the steel and the shred. So now. I know we know that the scrapyards are publishing their prices online. If I could scrape the price data from the web page and dump the prices into a database, then I could plot a graph showing price trends over time. This will give me the ability to judge when to sell my scrap metal. Um, here's a graph of the scrap copper price on August 8th of 2020. It, the date is on the bottom. It ranges from August of 2018 to August of 2020. And the price ranges from a low of 260 to a high of 350. And on August the 8th of 2020, the price was 48 a pound. I'm looking at this graph going, it's about as high as it's been for the past two years. I think I'll sell my stash of copper. Well, it turned out to be the wrong move because 10 months later, or eight months later in June of 2021, the price jumped to over $5 a pound. And the green dot here is where I sold. So I lost out on that. Second example, scrap tin and iron, or scrap tin price on March 4 of 2022 was sitting at 16 cents a pound. The graph on the bottom ranges from January of 2021 to March of 2022 and the price ranges from about 12 and three quarter to 19 and a half cents a pound. Uh, then on March 11th of 2022, scrap tin jumped to 25 and a quarter cents a pound. This was shortly after the uh, Russia-Ukraine war started. Um, I sat on that for a while, for a week, and decided to hightail it to the scrapyard and sell whatever scrap tin I had. That turned out to be the right decision, because two months later, in June of 2022, the price dropped back down to 15 cents a pound, and I sold at 25.25, where the green dot is. Okay, the first program I wrote, was a command line program called zubixscraper.py. It retrieves the web page from retrieves the scrap prices from the web page. It parses the web page using the beautiful soup python library, stores materials and prices in an SQL SQLite database. I use a single database table for simplicity. And I convert all quantities to pounds on data import because my Pontiac vibe doesn't hold much more than about five or 600 pounds in the back. And I will show you the code for the scraper. Can everybody read that or do I need to blow it up some more? That looks fine. I think you're okay. Okay. You could blow it up a little bit more, but I think it's fine. All right. So the first thing I do is import some libraries. I set some uh, global constants. I uh, define a month number array. 
I wrote a routine to create the database. Here's the database table, the schema, if anyone's interested. Um, we read the source web page. We store the content in the beautiful soup, and we use the LXML parser. Next thing I do is grab the date stamp on the web page. Um, has this line right here on their web page that every time they change their web page, they update this date, which is very handy for me. Um, I took advantage of that fact. I pull that date out, and then I read my data file and find the date of the last update from my data. And if the date stamp and the last update are equal, there's no price updates available, so the program exits. Um, if it falls through, I find um, I find all of the uh, tables in the web page. Uh, where is the view source? More tools. Does anyone know where to see the source in Brave? You could see it through the developer tools. Like it would give you like this view, but I think there's a way you can like go about view view about view source. I think or source colon slash slash if you want the other view. Uh, I didn't practice this, so we can pop it up in Firefox. Yeah, usually Control U should do it. Uh, okay. Uh, so here you see the price for number one bright copper. Um, there it is. It's stored in a table. And my program searches for all of the tables containing the material, the commodity name and the prices. And I'm not sure where there's the price 451 and the commodity name number one bright copper. So getting back to my program, it searches it searches for all the tables. It finds the table rows, and it pulls out the columns, and, and it appends columns to a material prices array. Then I go through the array, pull out the first string as material. I pull out the second string as price per unit, and I discard the third string because I am not interested in the price per metric ton. I split the price per unit into price and the unit. If the unit is net tons, which is 2,000 pounds, I convert net tons into pounds. And if the price is greater than zero because I'm not interested in selling stuff for free, I insert the values into the database table or into the database. And at the end of this program, I read back what I have written, and that came in handy when I was writing my GUI app. So as an example, um, okay, you're not seeing much because there are no price updates available today. Um, I can show you the database file. This is a little hard to see. Um, Here's the database structure. We have yard, material, price, unit, and date stamp. And here's the data with the most recent data first. So I have approximately 25,000 records in the database. I've been collecting data for about four and a half years. The second program, plotgraph.py. This plots a graph of prices over time using Plotly. It displays the plot in a web browser. Um, saving an image of the plot was doable with Orca, but it was a painful process to learn. And I didn't like the resulting executable because Orca was a 50 megabyte app image that, in my opinion, took too much space for what it did. So we can see, and here's the graph of bright copper from August of, and it's popping four graphs, August of 2018 to present day, 
price ranges from a low of 260 to a high of 542. And that is the graph, the purchase price for bright number one bright copper for the past four and a half years. Here's the same thing for yellow brass and the same graph for tin and iron sheeting and the same graph for AutoCast. Program number three is the second version of plot graph. It plots a graph of prices over time using the Python 3 Matplotlib library. Matplotlib allows zooming in on the graph as well as saving the image of the graph in a PNG format. I apologize. Cancel that. I apologize that the uh, x-axis is unreadable. I did fix that issue in a later version of the program. But this is also displaying four and a half years worth of data. So here's the same graph in using Matplotlib. And I can zoom to a rectangle. I can zoom to another rectangle. I can save the figure. Reset the original view. There's the same graph for yellow brass. Once again, I can zoom in on any rectangle I want. I didn't write this code. It's all done in the library that I chose to use. And if, should I like to like that graph, I can save it as a picture. Same graph for tin iron and iron sheeting, which is basically thin sheet metal, if anybody's wondering. And the same graph for AutoCast. Um, plotting your graph is nice, but now I wanted a GUI. So I headed over to this tutorial right here. This was indispensable in writing my GUI. I basically went, I basically typed in most of the programs in this tutorial and learned how to program GTK under Python. I also bought a book, which you can look up on Amazon. Um, the price browser program displays a list of prices in a scrolled window, and it sorts the list of prices by date. And we will show you that. And here's the price browser. We have the yard, the material, the price, the unit, and the date stamp, and I can sort by date. There it's descending from the current date all the way back to August 31st of 2018. And uh, this one doesn't let me sort by material. I know it's hard to read if you have a small laptop screen. Um, the one thing I didn't like about this version of the program, it displays the price as a decimal, and the date is straight numbers, which I find hard to read. I have to think about the fact that 0524 is May 24th, and I, I like to be able to read it off and not have to think about it leads me to the next version, Price Browser 2. Displays a list of prices in scrolled window, sorts lists of prices by date and material, and I wrote custom cell renderers to be able to display the price and the date in a more readable form. I'm going to demonstrate the cell renderers. Here is the cell renderer for currency. which popped up on my second monitor for some reason. I'll just drag it over. And here we have a list of currency values. I chose to display anything under a dollar as cents and anything over a dollar as dollars and cents. There are some issues, which I will get to later. This should display as 55 cents, not 55.00. Second custom cell renderer I wrote was the date formatting or the date cell renderer. It displays the dates in human readable form. So now I don't have to think what does 05 2023 mean? And I can just read it off. Okay, so we'll show you the second version of the price browser. And I didn't blow this up. 
Again, I can sort by the date. Now you'll notice it's displaying the, the price as cents if it's below a dollar and dollars and cents if it's above a dollar. And it's displaying a human readable date. I believe I can sort by material on this as well. So I, you can easily see the price trend for number one bright copper for the past two or three months. Okay. Selecting the set. The next program I wrote was a layout demo. I wanted to be able to select the scrapyard and the material from a list. I wanted to be able to update prices by pressing a button. I wanted to be able to select date ranges by pressing a button. And I wanted to be able to plot a graph by pressing a button. And here's the layout demo. You can choose your scrapyard. Um, this won't do anything because I only have data for one yard. You can choose the material. We can choose the date range, last two years. Get price updates won't do anything. It didn't program that yet at this point. And plot graph won't do anything. It's just not programmed yet either. But that is the, the uh, layout that I wanted for my program. Finally, putting it all together, program number seven, Zubix Scrap App. It combines the scraper, the, the second version of the plot graph program, the price browser, and the layout demo into a single application. It adds new records to the scrolled window. It filters data in the scrolled window based on user selections of scrapyard and material. I have not yet written a date range filter, and price data has been collected since August 30th of 2018. And the final version is here. Okay, we can choose our yard. I only have data for one yard. It takes a while because it's filtering all the records by the scrapyard. And we can choose our commodity. And I am going to pick bare extrusions, bare aluminum extrusions. And you see the price for aluminum extrusion. You choose the date range, last two years. And then we plot the graph. And there it is. And I notice I fixed the x-axis labeling. This graph shows the price for aluminum extrusion from June of 2021 to June of 2023. Price ranges from about 98 cents to over $2. Okay, bugs in Zubik Scrap App. Certain values for prices display incorrectly. For example, 29 cents, 58, 7 cents, 58 cents show as 29.00. 57.00 and 58.00 cents, respectively. Um, it has to do with the way fractions are stored in binary. I attempted to write my own isInteger function to replace the built-in Python one, but I didn't get anywhere, and I still got the, the same errors. Okay. Zubik Scrap App uses more storage space than needed. It's not a relational database model. Um, it loads the entire database into memory when the application starts, which I have a loaded computer with 16 gigs of RAM, so and the database is only about 2.5 megs. So it's not a problem, but this won't run on your 486 or 386 with 4 or 8 megabytes of RAM. And maximizing the window blows up the buttons. And quickly demonstrate that. If I maximize this window, it expands the buttons to fill the screen. I believe that's an option in the calls I made to create the buttons, but I haven't figured out how to solve or how to, how to change it. Um, graphs show prices that are varying linear, linearly between data points, but actually the prices are constant between the data points. I need a step graph for time series data. 
but none is available in matplotlib. This is what the graph should, uh, this is what the program plots. It plots an angled line between two, 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 the two price prices. The green line here is what I want to be able to plot. And it's more of a step graph as opposed to an angled graph, uh, drawing a line from one price to another. The roadmap for Zubix Scrap App. I really should write the date range filter to filter records in the scrolled window by the date range. I'd like to add a column for price changes since the last update. I'd like to add a mass conversion window in the tools menu to convert between pounds, kilograms, net tons, and metric tons. I'd like to add support for multiple scrapyards by writing more scrapers and changing the SQL queries. And I'd like to add a user-defined custom date range where dates are selected from a calendar. My pipe dream would be to convert the single database table to a relational database model. It would require re rewriting all the SQL queries and most of the code. I'd like to be able to update to Python 3.10, which would let me use case statements and make the code cleaner. And if I really have a lot of time, I'd like to convert it to GTK4, but you can't find a lot of documentation or Python examples with GTK4. Any questions? So Ron has a question. Um, okay. Are you going to pull up the chat, or should I just read them to you? Pardon? Oh. Should we just um, read them, or you want to pull up the chat? It's your call. I'll pull up the chat uh, if I... Oh, the advantage of Python 3.10, it, it lets you use the case statement as opposed to um, if, else, if, else, if, else, if, and if. It's the same thing without the case statement, but I like clean code. Any other questions? Uh, you mentioned uh, like bug fixes and code stuff you want to add. Uh, are there any new features you still want to add to this or anything you want to, any new program just has inspired you to want to write? Not really. I'm too busy scrapping stuff out to, to uh, code this. It took me three years to go from the command line to the GUI, so of my spare time. Maybe then the other question is, does this, does this do what you wanted it to? Like, does this... Uh, does this help you do your scrapping more easily? Uh, it helps me decide when to sell. I, I had I had a gut feeling that prices go up in the spring and they tend to drop off in the fall and winter. Um, and I now have the data to demonstrate that fact. Uh, okay. So does that mean that you you could you can more confidently hold off on selling at the wrong time of year? Be pretty confident that's going. Uh, it's going to go back up again. I'll demonstrate with uh, number one bright copper. Um, all dates, plot graph. Okay, so until about 2020, the price of bare bright copper hovered between three and three fifty a pound. Then COVID hit. And the Russian-Ukraine war hit, and it's been hovering between four fifty and five dollars a pound. So, had I known prices were going to shoot to over five dollars a pound, I probably would have held on to it back in August of 2020 as opposed to selling it. But you can't predict what the market's going to do ten months in advance. It's, this will only let me see, hey, the price is going up or, hey, the price is going down. And I hopefully can make a more educated decision on when to sell. I, I did have the thought when you told that story to begin with of how you sold at a, a good price, but not the highest price that you could have gotten. That uh, This might also be a regret generator. Uh, I've never heard of Graphena. 
so I did not try that. <laughs> John, where do you normally go pick up your scrap? Uh, my dad worked in construction and picked up anything and everything he could. So he well, had so a lot it. of junk. He had a lot of junk when he passed away, and I've spent the last three years cleaning up. Oh, okay. So you're not the guy to buy my house just before garbage day every couple of weeks and pick up stuff, are you? Well, that, and I live in a, I live in a student complex, so there's a lot of scrap metal on the curb too. Right. <laughs> yes, I am running all this code locally on my PC, and no, I have not thought about hosting it on a server. And no, I have not stored any of the code in a repository, and I should have. But that was yet something else to learn. Um, I would rather render the graphs locally in a current in my current GUI as a local app rather than a web page. And as far as I know, I haven't made any scrapyards aware of my project. Um because I don't really want a cease and desist letter from Zubix lawyers. I don't know. They have changed the web. Zubix has changed their web, web page slightly, which caused my scraper program to one change. My scraper program handled no problem. Um, they decided to put the dollar sign as color and the, uh, and the numbers as black. They used to be all black. And they added price per metric ton. And I had to modify my scraper program to deal with the price per metric ton. And since I'm not interested in that, I just junked it. Okay. Now, the graphs with the green dots, I manually made them. I just uh, drew a green dot in on, on where I sold D3J. I don't know what D3JS is, so I would have to look that up. And yes, you can put up video and audio of my presentation, Paul. <laughs> Any other questions? If you decide to convert this to GTK4, will you come back and tell us about it? Uh, that's going to be a retirement project. <laughs> okay. So we're going to have to keep this running for the next 10 to 20 years so you can come back and tell us about that. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, then, will you come back and tell us when you convert this to GTK 10? Let's say 10. No. <laughs> it, it took me a year and a half to write the GUI between learning, uh, between learning how to plot all the buttons, draw out the scrolled window, and dump all the data into it and get it working, so... I, I just don't have time for a lot of coding right now between trying to clean up my dad's junk and working a full-time job. Hello, my name is uh, Eugene, and today I will show you how to debug scripts and Perl. Uh, we always find bugs in our application, but when we start our progress for fixing a bug, we can find a bit more. For easy analysis, uh, each programming language provides its own set of tools. I'm programming, so I will show capabilities of Perl Debugger. How many programmers are here today? Please write plus in chat. Okay, we have some. Uh, does someone use Perl programming nowadays? Okay. Um, and who debug your programs using print expressions? <laughs> okay, uh, I have a news for you, good news. Uh, now you can throw out this technique. If you did that type of debugging uh, a lot, so you further with next process. You have a script. You write prints to see what is uh, coming at this point of script. Comment out useless print statements while debugging, and finally, after problem resolution, you delete all those comments with prints. Then the print process is repeated on next issue. But with help of devil debug hook skill print, 
all is more easy. You add special command like uh, pound dbg colon some expression pound and that's all. And if you want, you can give names uh, to your expressions after the colon. Uh, now you can run your scripts as usually, but with additional addition of this flag minus d column debug hooks colon colon kill print. As a result, you will see on your screen values for all evaluated dbg expressions. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to see results of any some specific expression, for example, this, uh, you can provide the name of that expression as parameter for debugger package. So this name you provide as parameter to debugger. <clears throat> and then you run your script again. Now you can see messages which are related to the provided name. So we see here only special messages. Here we see all messages, but with parameter we see only this one. Also, for example, you can limit evaluation to only unnamed DBG expressions. In this case, uh, you can provide default parameter. So we see here only output for unnamed expressions. <clears throat> the benefit of this method is naming. Via parameter, you indicate which group of expressions you want to see or hide. And you don't need to go via all your source order and uncomment required prints. Someone could argue that these comments could litter your code, but, uh, mm, and I could agree. But I have one idea to put these debugger comments into comments like annotations. Then ID could parse history and show notices with these debugger comments or even create debug profiles. So debugger can understand what to print at which line of program. Uh, kill print also allows uh, to profile your code or do comparative testing. So it will measure the speed of this or that function that value and next time we'll show you uh, how slower or faster your code become. I can answer short questions if someone have. Okay, uh, the bar interface. When you run uh, when you run your program in debug model like this, you will see debugger prompt. Uh, here you see a script name. Uh, here is your source code. With help of lcom, you can see source of any file which loaded by project. But uh, let's return to this a bit later. Uh, at line number there, you can see how debugger module was loaded. Uh, as you can see, nothing special, no any magic. This is usual package which makes use of per API. Uh, to completely uh, write uh, your own debugger, you need to implement only 10 requirements. But to write minimal debugger, you need to write only 12 characters. On this slide, on the left side of source code, you can see line numbers for your source code. Uh, lines where you can put breakpoints, watch points are marked with X sign. <clears throat> the next expression for execution is marked by right angle parentheses. So this is simple interface. Uh, now when you are familiar with debugger interface, let's introduce debugger commands in more details. By default, the debugger provides a few commands, but you can easily extend it. Uh, first command is S. This command does a step and allows to execute current expression and move execution to the next one. You can notice now how pointer will be moved. If next expression is function or message call, then execution will be stopped before first expression of uh, this function. Yeah. After falling into function, you can notice that entry point is marked by number and the right angel parent parentheses here. 
This number shows how deep you are from that point. The distance uh, from line 2 to line 5 is only one frame. So you see here number 1. Now you uh, now we are on line 2 and this is last expression and our function t2. This means that after its execution we leave this function stop on first expression after it here. You can see that we stopped on line 6. Next supported command is n. Uh, does step over. It works similar to the s command, but if next expression is function call, then debugger will not stop on first expression inside this function. Instead, it will stop on expression which follows this function. So we don't stop here, and we stop will be stopped here. <coughs> you can see how we did step over everything inside T2 and stopped on line 6. Command R run code until the function exits. It will allow run all the rest expressions inside this function and stop on first expression which follows the call of this function. You can see that we didn't stop on line 3 after running the command and we stopped on line 7. Another example, when we are on line 3, uh, and if function was called from expression like this, this is uh, here are two chained functions. Uh, then when uh, an execution exits t1 function, we will be stopped inside function t2. So from here we will be stopped here. You can see on this slide that we stopped on line six. After exiting from function t2, we are stopped on line nine. Such behavior are not always useful if you don't want to go through all call chain. It could be really long. In our example, only two functions in chain, but it could be uh, longer. So, so if we provide a number for error command, then we will be stopped after whole chain. You can notice now uh, that we didn't stop at message t2. Uh, t2 and we stopped at line on line nine. <clears throat> uh, parameter for error command is useful also in case when one function was called from another. For example, here t two was called from t one at line five. Here, and t two was called from line eight. Oh. And T1 was called from line 8. When we return by two frames up, we don't stop on any rest of expressions at T2, uh, T2 here. And we don't stop on any expressions at T1 here. We finally stop on line 9. Any questions? Uh, I input... Uh, Debugger commands at debugger prompt. It's not shown uh, on the slides. Okay. Let's go. To get information about frames, we can use t command, t debuggers command. Uh, running it, we will see call stack. Uh, here we can see that function t2 were called from line 5 were called from this file at this line. And function t1 were called from line 8. Uh, these numbers we saw when listing. Notice that on the left side on angle parentheses. So this is one stack frame ago and this function was called two stack frames ago. Yeah. Stack frames. Here, our code. <clears throat> we 
when we see a list of frames, we can notice the column context. Uh, here we can see that uh, uh, semicolon shows void context, do uh, dollar sign shows scalar context, and uh, F sign shows list context. In addition, you can see the arguments which were passed to the functions. So T T2 was called without arguments, and uh, T1 was called with 33. <clears throat> Next commands, wars shows all variables available from current execution point. Argument A shows all available variables. This is by default. Uh, displayed information uh, divided by few sections. First section, my shows all lexical variables. Our section shows all aliases for global variables, which were defined at this package. Global Section global shows all globally available variables. Section used shows variables which was used by a current function. And last one, closed over, shows closed over, over variables. This, these are variables used by closures. We can get the value of variable just entering its name. So uh, when you input in your debug prompt uh, name of variable, you will see its value. In our case, you will see four. So because uh, x was assigned number four. And most useful feature, we can see variables and their variables for any stack frame. To see them, we just should pass frame number. Here we want to see value for x variable at previous stack frame. You can see that uh, we are inside t2 function here. Uh, this function has its own variable named x here. And this variable has value 4. But uh, when we run this command, uh, we will dump uh, variable from previous stack frame. This is this variable. <coughs> and dump it value will be this hash. If you want, uh, you can dump only interesting part of data, interesting part of data structure by providing expression. If you have question, I can answer. Between section, I will do. Uh, I will provide short period of time to answer questions, so you can write questions in advance. Okay. <clears throat> More different types of arguments has L command. You can list your source code by file line. You can list uh, functions from previous stack frames. You can list uh, function by its name. You can depart function from its bytecode by its address and memory. You can list departed function from current frame and analyze how Perl interpreter see, sees it. While you list your source code, it's not required to use full file name. You can just use file number instead of name. This will save a lot of typing. Like this. To find out the number for interesting file, you can use f command. You can pass regular regular expression for this command. Then, then it will list only those files which matches given regular expression. So here we passed t2 as regular expression, and only one file is displayed. <clears throat> Here you can see that for our application was loaded only one file and it's number zero. This is the number on the left side of file name. Here is how looks departed function from given address of memory for the ref. Uh, here in our program was uh, error. So. <clears throat> 
uh, we for scalar uh, assign two values, but uh, only one value can can be assigned. And uh, to understand which value is assigned, we can uh, the parse function. So Perl sees uh, that expressions like this. So it assigns value one and value two will be just dropped. <clears throat> Here's an the example how to list a function by its name. So if you list T2, you will see uh, this source code. Here is an example how to depart function from current frame. So we just uh, provide impression parameter to L command and we will see current function uh, we are executing. So this is how Perl interpreter sees our code. Oh. This is uh, how this function was written. This, this is original source code. <clears throat> we can deparse uh, also function uh, from our call stack too. If we provide the number as argument for L command. So if we uh, put number uh, followed by uh, impersant, uh, we can dump the parse function from Call stack numbers three. Well, this is Go command, uh, which runs script until specified file line. What is the given function name? So if we run command Go T2, uh, we will be stopped at function, at first line of function T2. Uh, without parameters, this command will execute script to the end of program or to uh, at the some breakpoint. Any questions? Nobody typing, typing. Okay. So my implementation of debugger allows to debug uh, itself. You can enable this mod by changing dd flag. Just execute next command db state dd1. A su success, you will see the number one. This means the debugger debugging was turned on. Now let's uh, try to run the command which we want to debug. Uh, as command. Now we stopped uh, on first expression already inside our debugger. Let's evaluate next nine expressions. On this slide, you can see how debugger debuggers, uh, how debuggers command do step was implemented. Only one, two, three, four, five, six lines. <clears throat> if you compare source code, uh, this source code with Perl standard debugger Perl5db.pl, then you can see that my implementation of debugger is much simpler. And from this point, we can continue to debug debugger as any other Perl script. You can trace variables, functions, dump variables, and change their values. By the way, you cannot change variables value when you're debugging with print. Uh, questions. <clears throat> uh, Go command uh, will not skip uh, breakpoints. So uh, if we run go command, uh, it will run script until the end or will stop on next breakpoint. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, when you execute this command, e $db state, then you will see the bugger state. In this case, we see states of two copies uh, of the debugger. First one is the debugger uh, for our main script. And second one is debugger for debugger, which has been activated via DD flag. Overall, the state of debugger consists from three, three types of variables. First one is the global variable provided by Perl API via DB package. 
Second is the global variables visible by the current copy of debugger. And third is the variables available for active debugger. Uh, global variables uh, are usual Perl variables, nothing special. Uh, global variables for a copy of the debugger are saved at array of states. Here's first element. Here's second one. And copies of Perl API variables for current frame are stored under stack K. And here. From this dump, you can notice uh, how state was changed when we turn on debug debugger mode uh, with help of the state function and the defug. Here we can see saved state. Almost logic is implemented via dbState function, which tracks debugger copies. You can change the behavior for the debugger with a variable called dbVariables. Uh, you just add a key into this hash. And as value for that key, you should provide a reference to a function which implements that behavior. As you can see, here are only three types of states for debugger variables, internal variables, and uh, variables available for current frame. Having such tool to debug itself, you can easily extend this debugger. Uh, standard parallel debugger does not allow debugging itself. Because of that, it was hard or even impossible to understand what is coming on, what's is, uh, or what goes wrong when implementing new functionality. <clears throat> so down the line, open source uh, gives easy start. It's not asking for money, uh, saves you time, allows to earn. Generally, open source uh, supports you. So my ask to you is to support open source too because any software requires a lot of time to implement simple feature. Here you can see some statistics for devil debug hooks. So I done 1,200 comments, written about uh, 200 kilobytes of code and spent one year. Questions? Where would we find the code? Or uh, for anybody who wanted to use it, where would you find it? Uh, you can find this model on CPAN. Uh, and source code you can find on GitHub. Uh, uh, let me show uh, where you can find it. Yeah. And uh, here is repository. That, that was also a nicer looking interface to CPAN than I've ever seen before. Oh, sorry, I don't understand. May you please write your question? <clears throat> uh, until that, I will answer Paul's question. What are the most useful features of debug hooks with standard Perl debugger? So, uh, most useful feature is uh, kill print module, which uh, allows uh, uh, name your debug expressions and uh, don't delay them after you finish your debugging. Another feature is uh, you can see uh, any variable uh, at any stack frame. So with uh, standard debugger, uh, you can configure it to uh, use third-party modules uh, to view uh, such variables, but uh, with my implementation, uh, you already uh, have uh, pre-configured that. So uh, you can see which functions uh, from which point uh, uh, were called, uh, which variables uh, at that point. Uh, also, uh, a cool feature of my debugger is uh, you can change uh, variable names. Oh, you can change uh, 
variable values. Uh, you can do this uh, when you debug uh, with prints. So when you debug with prints, you write your print statement, you run your application, uh, see the values, and then change code and run your application again. But uh, running again and again uh, could take a time. For example, some application could uh, take a couple of minutes to start. Uh, and uh, with my debugger, you can uh, start uh, uh, another debugger session. So uh, you found uh, that some function could uh, could be wrong, and uh, from this point you can uh, start uh, interested function with different parameters again and again without restarting whole applications. So this is the main features. Um, my second, uh, I have also second implementation of my debugger. Uh, second uh, version of my debugger has uh, trace variable feature. So you can see at which point uh, and how uh, variable data was changed. It's uh, really useful if you have hash and you don't know uh, at which point some hash key is changed. So you um, issue command to trace uh, value and you can see uh, at which uh, points of program this value was used. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for pasting uh, URL to this debugger. No problem. Um, but also, if related to those links, uh, is there any kind of help that you're looking for in particular? Um, anything that you want people to do to support your project if they're interested? Uh, my second uh, version of debugger uh, is not open source and cost $100. Do you have a link for that if anyone is interested? Seems nobody interested. <laughs> okay, uh, Elgis asking, uh, are web development frameworks asynchronous? I guess they are super difficult to debug. Uh, Perl API provides uh, multi-threading, uh, 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 debugging for multi-threads, but uh, my debugger does not implement uh, debugging for, uh, for threads, uh, only one thread. Probably I could implement this, uh, but I don't know when. Uh, actually, uh, in one month, from 10 of July uh, till uh, 15 of July, uh, there will be Perl Raco conference in Toronto. So uh, everybody related to Perl are invited to this conference. I also will be speaker uh, there and will uh, present my second version of debugger. Uh, Perl Raco conference? Uh, yes, of course. Here's a link. Any other questions? Mm, no, I don't use Raco. I'll stick to Perl 5. Um, unfortunately, I don't investigate uh, into uh, popularity of Raku. Mm. Yes, Raku is uh, Perl 6. So Perl developers uh, decide to rename Perl 6 because uh, it took very long time to implement it, and uh, honestly, it's uh, as a result, different language. So it was given its own name. Uh, Raku was released, but uh, it takes about 15 years. So, okay, I'm finished. Thank you, everybody. Hope you will try my debugger and uh, post some feedback in all open some issues uh, on github <laughs>
yeah, better way uh, to create issues on GitHub. Um, also, I uh, when you post uh, this presentation on your site, I will add uh, a link uh, from documentation to this presentation. Thank you for listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo Linux User Group audio podcast. Our monthly meetings are free of charge and open to all, so please join us if you are around. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month from 7 to 9 p.m. in Kitchener. Please visit kwlug.org for upcoming topics, for directions, and for additional meeting information. In addition to attending a meeting, you can participate in the KWLUG community by joining our email discussion list, by offering to present a topic, or just by spreading the word about this podcast. Thanks also to IndieServe Networks, Archive.org, and CCJ Clearline for hosting our website and multimedia files, to the Working Center for offering meeting space, and to the many people who participate in the KWLUG community. Until next time, goodbye world!